Hi, kids. Let's learn about words. You keep using the word. I do not think it means what you think it means. What does it all mean, Basil? At last, we're going to have a dialogue about the power of words. Discussion of a language. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? I learned that you should choose your words carefully. That's what counts. Far, far more complex. Well, by God, I got a couple of words for you. The quality of your words. We all know where to find the meaning of a word. A dictionary. The consummate repository of cut and dry definitions for all, quote, certified words. The truth is, however, that most words can hold many meanings, depending on situation, culture, generation, and perspective. Don't tell me words don't matter. Because our words have creative power. On Open to Interpretation, host Amy Young is joined by PLU faculty and educators from different academic disciplines to consider a single word commonly used in the news, on social media, and on college campuses. What did you say? Whatever I feel like I want to say. Sometimes for a moment I can't say anything. Through debate and dialogue, Open to Interpretation reminds us that rarely, if ever, can a word's meaning be reduced to a single understanding. It ain't the word! It's the context in which the word is set. To get a great job in this economy, you need to have strong language. Well, I think that's a super philosophy, Sean. And now, here's Dr. Amy Young. Welcome to our second episode of Open to Interpretation. I am Amy Young, and joining me today are Pauline Shanks-Curran, Associate Professor and Chair of Philosophy, and Michelle Sainer, Professor of Psychology. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad you could be here. Um, so we're going to start with a speed round of questions. These are much lighter than our topic of conversation today. Are you a better singer, painter, or craftsperson, Pauline? Painter. Painter. Michelle? Craftsperson. What kinds of crafts? I do some quilting. Whoa. Yeah, when I have time, which is not very often. <laughs> wow. I am about the least crafty human on the face, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I would say I'm a better singer, I guess, than either of those. So we have a singer, a painter, and a craftsperson in here. Is there going to be a song? I don't know. <laughs> we should form a group of some kind. First musical album or single you remember purchasing, Pauline? Queen, Another One Bites the Dust. Nice. I remember my first album was Men at Work. <laughs> That, yes, is amazing. It's really yeah. embarrassing, but that is... <laughs> I think that's... Uh, no, I don't think that's embarrassing at all. I, I'm down that's... with you, sister. Yeah, yeah I yeah. totally feel you. Yeah. Mine was Michael Jackson's Thriller. Thriller. That was my second one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was the first with my own, own money. Mm. All right, roughly how many times, if ever, did you take a nap in your office last year, Michelle? Probably once last year. Previous years, it's been more, but I was too busy to nap last year. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> sad but true. Um, I would say five or six times, and also note that I have to lay on the floor to do that. Oh, so me too. I have nowhere to like sleep in my office. Wow. Have a comfy couch or a chair. Yeah. I have a couch that I inherited, but I am sort of desperately trying to get a slip cover because I am not sure what has happened <laughs> on the couch on the couch or before the couch. I or to the couch before I inherited it always wise 
And I have an office with a lot of windows that face out to the street, so now I'd have to pull all the blinds. And <laughs> it takes work. Okay, so what we're going to do for the rest of our time on the podcast is we're going to talk about a word. Um, so the idea of open to interpretation is that we take a word that is used um, generally in campus or social media or public discourse, it's current, and we try to talk about its various meanings because often these words are not fixed or static. Today's word actually comes to us from alum Kelly Ryan. Uh, who had requested that we talk about violence, the word violence. I'm going to start with Pauline and ask, if you had to define the word violence, how would you do that? So we're starting with a nice, easy question. An easy question. (laughs) It's a softball. (laughs) I guess when I think of violence, and my work is in military ethics and the ethics of war, so I'm thinking primarily from that lens. But I also teach courses in, in race issues, I think we tend to think of violence as some kind of physical action that violates the rights or the autonomy of another person. It may not always be physical, but I think when we think of violence, we tend to think of physical Mm -hmm. violence, some kind of physical activity like shooting someone or hitting someone or um, in some way violating their rights or often creating harm against their body or their person in some way. Mm -hmm. Michelle? In social psychology, we tend to talk more about aggressive behavior than violence, Mm. um, which is maybe slightly different. And that would be an intent to do harm. So a behavior with an intent to harm somebody. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily have to be just physical. It could be psychological, emotional harm as well. Okay. Um, And I think sometimes, I don't know that violence always comes with an intent to do harm. I think sometimes we can engage in violence accidentally. Sure. Um, but generally, I think I would agree with Michelle that there's an intent to do harm, but not always. If I asked you or sort of an average person on the street, what's a violent movie, you would say? Die Hard. Die Hard. Yeah. Or, you know, Saving Private Ryan or, you know, uh, any kind of war movie. So American Sniper is a violent movie. Mm-hmm. Um, where there's shooting and physical harm, I think that's what we tend to think about that. When we think about, I have boys, so what constitutes a violent video game, right? Right. Lots of shooting and punching and hitting and explosions explosions and blood and harm to people's bodies or to property. Die Hard's a good example of that, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when you actually see the violence, so sometimes there's a movie where the, the violence is implied, but you don't actually see the bodies Mm, um, mm-hmm. We don't necessarily think of those as violent as the ones where you actually see the people being shot and dying on screen. Yeah. Um, for instance, I just showed Batman Begins in class because we're learning to do sort of cultural criticism. Okay. And superhero films are really good for American cultural criticism. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they're an explication in many ways of values that we have in this culture, sort of ideals or standards. Batman is an interesting character in that regard because the sort of lines of what is just or unjust or violent or not violent 
are often we let Batman get away with stuff that we are kind of not okay with other people getting away with. But one of the interesting things about that is he never uses guns, right? And Batman begins the only time he has a gun, he gets called cowardly, and that's when he's trying to revenge his or avenge his parents' murder. And otherwise, it's all theatrics and sort of taking people out of commission, but not killing them. Right, right. right. Um, fear and other kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But there's other kinds of movies that we wouldn't call violent or shows that we wouldn't call violent that explore other kinds of or ways of thinking about violence that aren't graphically physical harm to other people. Mm-hmm. Mean Girls. Mean exactly Girls. Exactly what I was just going to say. So you yeah, mean, girls, mean Girls, or I was thinking it's not a show, but, you know, my son, one of the radio stations, one of the more popular radio stations does a, like a call-in thing that's basically a prank where they, and some of them are quite cruel pranks that they play on people. Hmm. I, I mean, I think that's violence, um, sort of leading people to believe one thing and then and then switch switching it out on them and humiliate, you know, anytime right. there's some kind of humiliation. I mean, international law has recognized humiliation as a, a problematic category. You can't mm-hmm. treat prisoners of war in a, in a way that's designed to humiliate them. So I think that's some of the other sort of forms of violence, whether that's, you know, manipulation or humiliation or or control or those other kinds of things. I think Mean Girls is a great example of that because there isn't physical violence involved, no. right? But it, there's a lot of harm. There is a lot of harm. Right. right. That happens. But we think it's funny. Yeah. You know, but we think it's funny. Right. Right. The, or we're socialized to think it's funny. Or the practical, Because it has Tina Fey. Yeah, or the practical <laughs> joke shows, right, where you're pranking people. Right. Mm-hmm. One, one of my sons is really into that right now, and he's... When I object, he said, well, it's just for fun, Mom. It's not a big deal, right, mm-hmm. because we're laughing, so it's not a big deal. And I think a lot of the microaggressions are often parsed as sort of jokes or, you know, sort of right. humorous comments. So it's just a joke, so it doesn't, it doesn't hurt if it's, right. if it's, if it's, it's a joke. If it's packaged correctly, right. then somehow it's not then it's, violent yeah. against someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, but we absolutely recognize those dynamics that happen in – Mean Girls, there's a reason that that film is sort of a cult favorite Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of people is because we were all in high school once. Right. And we saw those sorts of things happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, I mean, when I think when you're talking about this in sort of larger circles that we might be dealing with. Um, specific kinds of issues or trying to uplift specific kinds of ways of dealing with violence on campus that our broader public culture is not either not recognizing or maybe not doing as much about. I mean, have you seen interventions in sort of other ways in other circles about things like mean girls? <laughs> I, I <laughs> Or think, mean boys? <laughs> yeah, I mean... I think the best kinds of interventions are interventions that that try to bring the parties together and try to mm-hmm. acknowledge that both sides have good intentions, perhaps, or that there is some kind of mediation or some kind of conversation around what happened and and how it was interpreted. I mean, one of the things that happens in my class classes a lot is the uh, the word politically correct gets thrown out as an epithet, 
Yeah. Right. <clears throat> and that it's automatically a bad thing. And so we have to have this conversation about, well, what does politically correct really mean? Right. And isn't that just another way of saying we need to be respectful and sensitive to other people? So there was a meme on Twitter for a while, replace politically correct with respectful and see how the, the how the that sentence, changes the framing. It changes the framing of how you're thinking about what's going on. Um, I think that's part of it, but I think it's also important just to acknowledge that we can't, I don't have the experiences that other people have, and I can't have them. So mm -hmm. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to say things that are uh, insensitive and stupid and harmful, mm -hmm. uh, and we need to be able to be open and to be able to have a conversation with that in, in, in a productive way, right? I think when it, I, I think it's, it's harder when people feel blamed. Oh, um, sure. And, and then people shut down. Um, and so are there ways to have interventions that can acknowledge the harm that happens, but then also figure out ways to move forward? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I think a lot of, of like sexual harassment training in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, like workplace. And, in the workplace, yeah. it makes people feel like they're being blamed, like they can't make a joke or they can't compliment their their coworker on their their new dress right. that they're going to be charged with sexual harassment or they've done something really terrible um, and so they shut down and they just think that it becomes a joke rather mm -hmm. than taking it seriously and understanding how harmful it can be when it actually is sexual harassment right the difference between saying someone looks nice and something right. and a much more loaded version of that that leads actually into the second thing I was going to ask because there are a lot of issues of violence that get talked about, of violence of all kinds that get talked about on college campuses, ours included. And one of them is um, this, that people have been talking about things like microaggressions uh, for a while in pockets. But now we've sort of decided to have a more systematic approach to dealing with or being able to report uh, things like um, bias or microaggressions, right? What are, s let's talk about the things that are happening on campus related to violence. The president has talked more about microaggressions this mm -hmm. year and how they're trying to establish a reporting system for people to acknowledge that they've been the target of a microaggression mm -hmm. and so that some conversation will come out of that, hopefully between the person who feels that they've been harmed and the person who either did or did not intend to, to cause harm as a result. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about especially microaggressions, which maybe we should talk about what a microaggression is because I'm not sure that everyone is even familiar with that right. term. It isn't something that is particularly overstated or necessarily overt or in-your-face examples of racism or homophobia or, you know, ethnocentrism or nationalism or something along those lines, but is are little things that, as they build, become more and more and more problematic and demeaning to the person who is the victim of those statements. Right. Mm -hmm sort of classic example is asking a person of color, for instance, if they're here because they are part of an affirmative action program or something along those lines. Or if we mm -hmm. ask a person of color, where are you from? Or what are you? What are you? Right. What right. are you? My children get that a lot. Or in a male-dominated field like um, 
I work in, you know, I've often heard, well, you're very rational or you're really good, you know, for a woman. Right. So, or not even for a woman, but the underlying assumption is, is for a woman. For a woman. Right. right. Yeah, we've been talking about microaggressions, the reporting system the president announced. Um, but then there's also been some faculty workshops on microaggressions and sort of um, how to engage when they happen in the mm -hmm. classroom and what to do uh, when they happen. And so I think that's been part of the conversation. Also, um, there's uh, Title IX issues right. with sexual assault and sexual harassment where uh, faculty are undergoing, faculty and staff are undergoing training because we are all now mandatory reporters, mm -hmm. or at least most of us are mandatory reporters. Um, and so trying to shift the culture around uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault, so that we're all much more A, aware of what's going on, and B, that there's more conversation and better reporting about what's happening and, and what one hears and what one sees. Right. And that the encouragement is to to take responsibility, yes. even if you are in some ways a bystander. Yes, yes, right. yes. I think a lot of this is, you know, trying to figure out ways to address complicated issues of violence on campus. Right, right. More systematically or more intentionally. Right. Well, and that there are different kinds of things, just like with microaggressions, there might be more kind of overt ones that are closer to what we think of as conventional racism or sexism. Mm -hmm. And then there are things that are much more subtle, whether it's microaggressions or sexual harassment or sexual assault that might be much more subtle that we might just think of, oh, I was just teasing my colleague or I was just making right. a joke in class and that the other person may take uh, reasonably in a quite different way. Sure. Uh, and so learning to be more I think more sensitive and open that different people interpret things in different ways, speaking of open to interpretation. Nice plug. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel like we all sort of understand that physical violence is violence. We're all parents. Mm -hmm. We all tell our children not to hit other people or bite, don't bite the cat or whatever. <laughs> I mean, like, these are not appropriate <laughs> behaviors to have. I want you to be a civilized human being when you grow up. And we all kind of understand that that's, that's not okay. But some of these other ones, I feel a little bit like um, people who report incidences of bias that they feel are violent against them are sometimes seen as complaining unnecessarily or overly sensitive. You don't have to be screaming racial epithets at someone to do emotional violence right and that um, you know manipulation or attempts to control people can be kinds of violence as well and especially for those of us who are in a privileged or dominant position mm -hmm. right we might see those things well you know it's my right to control what happens in my classroom right so mm -hmm. I'm in charge um, and so either forgetting or not recognizing that there are effects of that that can be experienced as violence. Um, and I, you know, my children sometimes will argue with each other and hurt each other's feelings. And then one child will say, well, I didn't mean it that way. That didn't hurt you. And I say to my children, you don't get to tell someone else that they're not hurt. Right. You may not have intended it that way. You may not have wanted to hurt that person, but if they experience it as hurt, you don't get to tell them, well, no, that really didn't. It didn't hurt. That didn't hurt, or it's not a big deal. And right. so I think maybe that's part of what we're coming to terms with on mm -hmm. campus is being able to listen to each other 
and not be defensive, which is really, really difficult. It is. Um, because we're a caring community uh, and we want to see ourselves as such, but to listen to each other and, and, and really listen when someone says, when Amy says to me, will you hurt me? Here's how I heard what you said. Mm -hmm. And even if that's not how I meant it, I do need to listen to that and then try to think about that and, and then try to engage with Amy and try to figure out how to move forward in a way that repairs that relationship we have. Yeah, yeah. there's a, a psychologist, Daryl Sue, who is one of the people that first came up with microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And he talks about a thousand nicks that, you yeah. know, one's not going to hurt, but when it's happening every single day and in lots of little ways, then, you know, you never know if you're the one that's going to make it painful. Mm -hmm. I can let go a lot of stuff, but this is the last straw. Yeah. And now it really hurts. And right. you don't get to tell me that you're wasn't adding up from all the other stuff that I experienced over the last year. Absolutely. Um, yeah. How do you handle that if that happens in your classrooms? We've all probably been in classroom situations where the material is difficult or it's provocative or it's political or sure. it's something. And someone makes a comment that is maybe not terribly well thought out and not intended to harm, but it clearly lands on someone and you can see it and you know, I mean, like the temperature in the room changes or the kinetic force around you or something. I mean, you know when those things are happening, just like you know when it's going great and you're firing on all yeah. cylinders. So how do you respond to something like that in your classroom, Michelle? It doesn't happen as often at PLU as I probably experienced it when I was in other universities. I think PLU students tend to be shy about saying things Overly that nice. might offend yeah. somebody. <laughs> um, so typically when it happens, we pause and I'll ask them to explain and if there's somebody that wants to respond to it. But I generally end up trying to, to respond more and explain why that type of comment might not be as accurate as, as mm -hmm. they think it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I try to do somewhat the same thing. I mean, in philosophy classes, often we're, we're arguing about things. Sure. And especially like in my race class or in my war class, these might be issues that students are really emotional about and really have strong feelings and mm -hmm. have had experiences there probably isn't a day where you don't do round, do this. and so yeah. I just I just try to be honest, and we stop the conversation and let people respond and try to unpack the comment and try to be charitable to the person who made the comment. Say, okay, tell us where you're coming from, tell us what informed you making that comment, mm -hmm. and then yes, give other people a chance to respond. If other people aren't willing to respond, as a philosopher, I'll often play devil's advocate and say. Okay. Okay, what well, <laughs> imagine that you're a person who has X, Y, and Z experiences. How might you hear that comment? And I also do try to not assume that my students have malicious intent. In fact, I often say, I'm sure you, you didn't mean that to sound mean or harmful or whatever, mm -hmm. but then to try to unpack how it might sound if you're on the other side of that comment and why that might be problematic. But then also to say, okay, is there a way that we can rephrase the point that you are trying to make in, in a way that is not a microaggression but is still bringing up a legitimate sort of intellectual, say, criticism of, mm -hmm. let's say, affirmative action? Okay. There are legitimate arguments against affirmative action. Sure. Right. You're currently not making you're, one. You're not making yes. one of them. So then, <laughs> so then to pivot 
with the, with the student or whoever made the comment mm -hmm. um, to, to say how can we rephrase that, in other words, to teach people in community how to say the things they want to say but right. still be sensitive. Because the last, I mean, something I'm very concerned about with our conversations on campus is that we not shut down discussion because students are very nervous about saying things that they think will offend other people. And mm -hmm. that's actually, I think that's a form of, silence is a form of violence too. It can be, uh, certainly. Uh, so, and we have issues that we need to talk about, we need to be able to engage with, and we can't do that if everyone is terrified to say anything. Right. So is there a way to say, okay, but here's a better way to make that comment, and then the discussion can proceed from there. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite places to go out for cocktails and food in town is called Hilltop Kitchen. I don't know how many of you, have you been to Hilltop mm -hmm. Kitchen? I haven't been there, but I've heard of You've it. You've heard of it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's great, and I think, frankly, like all of the cool places in Tacoma are opening in Hilltop, and Hilltop has, for decades, because I grew up in this area, um, has for decades been uh, a place of perceived gangs and violence and poverty and drugs and all kinds of other things that have garnered different types of responses, community organizations, grassroots organizations, safe streets, those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, recently at our opening fall conference and our convocation, our university president invoked Black Lives Matter and stories of race violence. And when I was at Hilltop Kitchen one night, there was a group that came in and did essentially a performance piece um, a political performance piece that was talking about the gentrification of the neighborhood and the fact that this is a restaurant where you can't buy a cocktail for under $10. And yet people are being evicted from their homes and people who live in this neighborhood can't afford to come here. And that there's a gentrification that's occurring there. And I wonder if we can talk about the link of those kinds of more systemic or institutional historical kinds of violence and the types of violence that we would think about normally with Black Lives Matter, which is police brutality. Yeah, and I think that goes back to what we were talking about with film, that we conceptualize violence in a particular kind of way. Right. And so if it doesn't meet that paradigm of what we think of as violence, and I think that we have the same discussion with discussions of sexual assault and rape, right? If it doesn't meet a certain you know, some, someone jumped out and attacked you from the bushes, then it must right. not be rape, right. right? I think it's a similar uh, kind of thing. And once again, it may be that those attempts at gentrification, some of them may have, uh, may be motivated by good intentions. Mm -hmm. and some of them may be motivated by strictly a desire to make money. But part of, I think, the issue with gentrification is also not thinking about what the impact of the community is in a holistic way. Mm-hmm. Right. So what is the impact of having Hilltop Kitchen, which I love to go to as well? Mm -hmm. I mean, what's the impact of having a restaurant like that where people in the neighborhood cannot afford to, to go there right. and to participate in it? And then what are the effects of that? I think Black Lives Matter is about the issue of, of, of historically oppressed groups of people saying we want to be visible as well. 
Yeah. Right. It's about it's a desire to be acknowledged. That's what it's about. It's saying that our concerns, our issues, what we have experienced is not being acknowledged. It's not being taken as valuable Mm -hmm. and we want to be heard. And so I think the issues with gentrification are often issues around when developers or whoever goes in and they want to build a new apartment complex or or develop a new uh, shopping center or uh, restaurant or something. There's discussion about the economic benefits to the neighborhood, but that's only one piece of the puzzle. Right. I think of, of gentrification in areas where you know, for a long time, nobody wanted to live there. Yeah. And so people went, buildings were falling apart. They're beautiful old buildings and the mm-hmm. facades are gone. There's a lot of downtown to And then suddenly um, what happens is is the the developers, the people with money decide, hey, those those are great old buildings and now we want them back. Now and we so want it's them back. like we, right. we let you have it when we didn't want it. Mm-hmm. And now that we want it, you can no longer have it. And we're going to push you out and redo the buildings and, and then talk about what a great job we've done and how those people let it fall apart instead of right. acknowledging that part of why it fell apart is because people left that area to begin with. That the we, kind of white flight yeah, from yeah. the... 50s out into the suburbs mm-hmm. and suddenly now everybody's coming back into downtowns mm-hmm. and they want those areas back. And it's also the sort of we we're going to take the neighborhood back. There's an implication of class and race sure. and mm-hmm. gender and other kinds of privilege that comes along with those people screwed up the neighborhood. Right. You're doing it wrong. You're doing and we're going to come and fix it for you. And thank goodness we can mm-hmm. come in and open fantastic restaurants, you know. So on the one hand, I feel like well, it's great that these things exist because it's some, it does bring traffic to neighborhoods and people are spending money in neighborhoods that haven't had it. But on the other hand, that comes at a It comes price. at a cost, and that's You're, the same argument that was made with white man's burden, right? Was, right. was made with imperialism. Listen, mm-hmm. we're going in. It's the white savior complex. Mm-hmm. We're going in and we're making your lives better. Um, and you should be grateful, mm-hmm. right? So how dare you complain that we're changing things because we're bringing you running water or right. really good cocktails? I mean, right. I think just one look at the menu at Hilltop, which I love. I mean, that the menu doesn't necessarily reflect the, the neighborhood. You could take no. that menu to, you know, Puyallup or Bellevue or downtown uh, yeah. Seattle. It would work anywhere. Right. But don't you think part of the appeal of, of Hilltop Kitchen and places like that in, in those areas is – Oh look! I went to this really sketchy neighborhood and found this really great bar. Yeah, it's and so it's it's this. You know, how brave am I to how have brave. gone there, and now I can go back home to my safe neighborhood and go to bed. Right. But how is something like gentrification, or um, you know, not investing in a neighborhood, or white flight, violence? Some people would view that as injustice. What is the act of violence in there? I mean, would people see that as violent? I don't think we'd necessarily see it as violent because a lot of what happens is psychological harm. If the neighborhood is being reconstructed around me, property values go up. I can no longer afford my taxes. I have to leave my home. Right. Um, I'm pushed out. I have to, to move. I feel like I'm, I'm no longer part of the neighborhood that I, I belong to at one time. That's the psychological harm yeah. that can be caused by people coming into a neighborhood and trying to improve it. And we that's in, in some ways, or at least to outsiders looking in, that kind of a violence is not visible because it's not worn on the 
body. Right. And, and it may be, you know, if this is a person who has children, then they have to up and move, which is an expensive proposition. It is, yeah. Um, the children have to relocate to a different school, leave their friends, leave their community connections. Right. In many cases, this is a community that you may have been part of for a generation or more. Mm -hmm. um, and if... There are issues, I mean, you can say, well, well, you just move somewhere else and stay in touch, but I mean, that's, it's not that simple, right? You're asking people to move away from their community and their social context and their support systems, mm -hmm. which they may not then be able to access or access in the same way once they've moved, plus the economic violence of it costs money to get up, to move, there are transportation issues, there's right. issues finding a new place that, that one can afford. Um, if you have children, then there's issues of school. There's issues of getting to your place of employment. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of dislocation. I mean, the, the refugee crisis in, in Europe has gotten a lot of attention for the Absolutely. kinds of dislocation that are being caused and the violence that goes with that, both physical and psychological. And we but, would look at that and say, oh, well, that's we obvious say, violence. We'd say that's violence, but this is violence in a different, more subtle kind of way. You are mm -hmm. still being forced. It's not a choice you made. No. To, to, I chose to move to Parkland right. from Lakewood. That was a choice I made. That's very different than someone just saying, okay. You have to. You have to. You're being evicted from your house. That's right. a very different kind of context. Right. We're going to bring some wonderful development to your neighborhood that raises that you can't afford price per square foot by some significant amount and bring in a fancy grocery store that doesn't sell products that I can afford right right so now I have to take a bus to a grocery sh grocery store to get food to feed my children for right dinner. right issues of food desert and mm -hmm. food justice right and although that seems like just you know too bad or you know economic injustice, I think the the violence in there is just a lot more subtle. It's mm -hmm. psychological and it's emotional harm. Yeah. Um, well, and it's feeling like you can't win, right, at yeah. some level. And I think what ends up happening, right, is if you have enough of that emotional psychological violence, it starts to manifest itself in physical ways a lot of times. So then you have things like Drugs and gangs and crime and chronic and illness, chronic illness, chronic depression, yeah. stress-related heart disease, or right. We have one more question before we kind of wrap this up. This is an interesting group that's gathered in that we're all mothers of sons. I also have a daughter, but all three of us have sons and we're women raising sons. Is there a gendered aspect to violence that warrants our attention? Absolutely. Um, not just with with sexual violence, which we, we clearly see as being a gendered thing, but mm -hmm. I think with also... Um, gun violence and gang violence and, and all of that has a very gendered component. Mm -hmm. I think that what we end up doing and what we see in the media oftentimes is we take the gender out of it in the fact that we say, well, a woman was attacked, 
but we don't say a man attacked a woman. So we right the, like the, a passive voice kind exactly. Of, yeah. <laughs> so don't we, use passive voice <laughs> media. So we talk about you know women being victims of violence, but we don't talk about men being the perpetrators of violence mm-hmm. um, as much. Yeah, almost as if that's it's just so cliche. Yeah, that we don't need to talk about that. Right. That somehow mm-hmm. there isn't another gender. Or it's just to be expected. You mm-hmm. know, boys will be boys. boys will be right. They're, they're going to be violent, so they they need. Yeah, I think a lot of this has to do with our ideas about masculinity, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I see that my boys sort of trying to work through this with what they see in, in the media, and we have a lot of conversations about. Well, what does it mean to be? Because they're they're trying to figure out what it means to be a man, which sure. is a legitimate question. But there's a a, a very particular dominant uh, narrative of masculinity in American culture that has to do with violence. It mm-hmm. has to do with control. That has to do with aggressiveness and mm-hmm. assertiveness, and uh, both with regard to sexual matters and and also with regard to things like the gun culture or being able to defend yourself, being able to mm-hmm. you know to fight you know mm-hmm. uh, defend your your honor which is related to sort of you know gang-like issues mm-hmm. um, and so I think I mean I think there's a lot of that 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 I see my sons are steeped in the idea that not only is violence okay but it is necessary for mm-hmm. them to become men they have to become masters uh, of violence they have to be able to not be victims of it and be able to visit it on other people. Mm-hmm. That that's part of what it means in our culture right. to be a man. And, and as a woman, I find that highly problematic. And I have many male friends who also find it right. highly problematic. That that's what the dominant view of masculinity and manhood has yeah. still is in, in our culture. Sure. I, I tried... Um, raising my son without violent video games. We don't own a video game console Console. whatsoever. Good for you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Partly because I didn't want him, you know, playing violence. But as he got older, he he has become a little more interested in those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. We were just at the fair last night, and the one game he wanted to play was the one where you get to shoot the star out. And Mm -hmm. he does an amazing job for somebody who was never given guns to play with when he was a kid. Um, But he also talks about how there's this expectation to be a certain way, to be buff and to mm-hmm. be yeah. strong and yeah. in control um, that he doesn't know quite how to fit with either. I think yeah. it's interesting when I teach, especially when I teach advertising, we talk a lot about gender and advertising. And most of the work on gender and advertising is on women, mm-hmm. body issues of women and you know the negative effects of advertising as sort of an idealized standard or... Uh, whatever on on women and women's bodies and their emotional um, and psychological health, but we we don't spend as much time talking about what kinds of limits um, those truncated media representations put on boys mm-hmm. and on men that they're also presented in extremely limited varieties, right? And that right. they have the emotional range of lust to anger. Mm-hmm. And that there aren't other, <laughs> yeah, there aren't other ways to be a man or to be masculine that are recognized as viable right. or cool until you get older. But it's hard to outgrow that. Mm-hmm. 
damage. It, it, it is, and if what we're talking, we've been talking a lot about sort of violence in community or violence in relationships, that we, you know, I don't think we should be surprised that we have sexual assault and violence, that we have microaggression against women or people of color because, you know, we have a culture that's that's trained most men in a very specific kind of way. Mm-hmm. So I think I think there's this there's this culture that we just take boys will be boys. It's taken as given. We don't give boys dolls, right? God forbid. They should learn to be empathetic. That's not that's not what men do. But then when a, a man commits sexual assault, then we look at them and say, well, what's wrong with you? Well, they're enacting exactly what they have been taught to mm-hmm. do in some kinds of ways, right. to be dominant, to be in control, to be aggressive and to be assertive and yeah. not to take no for an answer. So there's a connection between these things. And yet I think... For many people in our culture, we get we're confused. You know, when right. then when violence happens, we're like, well, there's a school How shooting. Can How be? could this possibly right. happen? And, and then it's a lone actor who just yes, went who went nuts off the reservation. Right. Yeah, poor. When, when actually, what it is is an absolute expression of what is in the culture. It makes perfect sense if you take yeah. that. As we say in philosophy, as your as your presupposition, if you mm-hmm. if you take that assumption, then it very clearly follows. Certain things are gonna are are following from yeah. that, whether that's mm-hmm. warfare, or gang violence, or sexual violence, or domestic violence, and child abuse within right. the home. All of those things follow from a certain way of conceptualizing the relationship between masculinity and violence. Yeah, right perfect distillation in some ways all right last word on the word violence michelle help wrap us up i think we may we need more discussion about the word i think that not just on college campuses and not just bullying um, activities that they do in the schools Mm -hmm. now but as a culture we need to to talk about how we um, hold violence um, and aggression as something that it's good mm-hmm. um, we I often say you know we we don't mind taking our very young kids to a violent movie but show them sex and suddenly it's x-rated and we can't watch it so, right so why is it okay for kids to watch violence when mm-hmm. it's not okay for them to see people engaging in in a natural romantic relationship yeah yeah, I was allowed to watch A-Team, but not Three's Company for that exact reason. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to reflect on that for a moment. Um, I, I agree with Michelle. I think there needs to be more conversation uh, about the word, but I think there also needs to be more honesty about the place that violence occupies in our history and, and in our culture. Yeah. And more conversations about the way in which... Because some violence is sanctioned. We say oh, some violence, and you can't behave that way. We're going to throw you in jail mm-hmm. or shame you or do other things when you do it. But then there's other sorts of violence, whether that's physical violence or emotional or cultural violence, that that we're going to say is okay. Mm-hmm. right? And so I think there needs to be much more conversation about the different types of violence and why we, as a society, say seem to say that some kinds of violence, the A-team's okay, right? But other kinds of violence are not okay because I think it does, I know with my children, it's a conflicting message and they're trying to sort out, well, why is why is war okay but me, you know, punching my brother in the face is not okay. Right, right, right. I mean, what's, what's the difference there? Yeah. And I think that conversation 
you know, is going to require some honesty and some humility about the ways in which our history um, and our culture is informed and supported by violence. I want to thank uh, Pauline Shanks Curran and Michelle Sainer for joining me today. And we'll see you next time. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. And that's all I have to say about that. I learned something today. We're all officially kicked out of school. See you around. Yeah, see you.